Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, September 11th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Republic Records. Acclaimed singer-songwriter Jack Johnson returns with his new album, All the Light Above It Too, featuring the singles My Mind is for Sale and Big Sur. According to LA Weekly, Jack Johnson remains one of the more influential singer-songwriters of the 21st century. All the Light Above It Too is available now. This episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. Go to ZipRecruiter.com minds to post jobs for free. Hate is a word that I've been hearing so much more in 2017 than in past years. It's partially because there's so many divisions, mostly across political lines and ideological lines, that seem to have gone to such extremes that we talk about each other in the language of hate. Uh, And there's no better evidence than that, than what we saw in Charlottesville. Like, what was your reaction when you saw the nationalists holding tiki torches surrounding a group of of anti-protesters. Well, before you call them tiki torches, which I think is kind of funny and makes me laugh every time, uh, it's frightening. It was frightening. You know, it was just, uh, it, it's it kind of mind-bogglingly, um, uh, it's just amazed, right? Left me speechless, obviously. Yeah. And the Vox documentary, which I think a lot of people saw, that actually captured audio of their chants, and they're using Nazi chants and slogans from the 30s and 40s, uh, I still can hear them yelling, Jews will not replace us as they're walking down the quad holding those tiki torches. By the way, I say tiki torches because I think it takes them down a peg. Yeah, the tiki Nazis, I think, is, you know, hilarious. I mean, not really, but kind of. What's unbelievable, though, is those people are Americans. They have jobs. They are clearly riled up in a way that I I can't relate to. What does it take for somebody to progress to that point where they don't see the people across the aisle, even though they have disagreements with them, as even human anymore? You know, 
it part of me just sometimes wonders if this isn't in some small way a cosplay. You know what I mean? Because like I remember when I was in summer camp, I grew up uh, in the Lithuanian community and at summer camp they would do things like in the middle of the night they would wake us up and they would pretend that we were in Soviet Lithuania and we were being taken away to Siberia. So, you know, there would be counselors or other campers who would play the part of the Soviet KGB agents and they'd march us out into the forest and it was a supposed to be a kind of historical way, you know, way of coming into history and learning what it was all about. But it was also kind of fun. You know, it was kind of exciting to be part of a group. It was like, good capture the flag. You know, there's all these kind of team building exercises that it does. So it kind of makes me wonder if sometimes there are people who are particularly lonely, who have trouble finding friends in society and they find a group of friends and they kind of run away with this kind of social bonding team building exercise that is around this belief. Well, luckily for us, um, we have science to help us explain this because I've heard everyone offer their explanation on TV for why the, these folks exist. But there is a bevy of psychology literature on this topic, especially post-World War II. Uh, and that's what I really wanted to explore is I had the same hint and assumption you did is like, there's something going on here about belonging, but also something that really clicks into place that allows them to consider the people across the way as not them, as something completely different, even inhuman on some level. And that's why this week we have on Ali Matu. He hosts a YouTube show called The Psych Show. He's a professor at Columbia University. His Original research is on anxiety, uh, but he did a recent episode of his YouTube show, Psych Show, on dehumanization, and really took us on sort of a Psychology 101 tour of the historical studies and some of the recent studies that have come out to really explain how this sense of otherism and, uh, and really dehumanizing other people, what that results in and what we know on how it develops. Well, that's great, because I find it baffling. With that, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Ali Matu. Anyone starting a business here in the Bay Area knows that there is a lot of competition for top talent. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. This episode is also brought to you by Republic Records. Acclaimed singer-songwriter Jack Johnson returns with his new album, All the Light Above It Too, featuring the singles My Mind is for Sale and Big Sur. According to LA Weekly, Jack Johnson remains one of the more influential singer-songwriters of the 21st century. All the Light Above It Too is available now. 
Ali, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, honored to be on the show. So we live in an, a time that feels incredibly polarized. At least that's what seems to be the narrative uh, on a lot of media outlets. And, the, and that polarization many point to leading to some really direct, tangible consequences, including clashes between different protest groups and what some can only describe as the reemergence of, of hate uh, and real fervent hate um, between groups on different, with really different um, ideologies. And, and I wanted to delve into this idea of, uh, of hate with you because you put out a recent video on your YouTube channel that really started to delve into some of the history of how psychology tells us this can happen because the feelings that we're seeing emerge are something that are are almost inhuman in some way. And is that what you're seeing too as a psychologist? Yeah, this is absolutely something that um, I'm seeing and something that psychologists are are tackling. Um, for the last the last few years, a lot of the um, the literature in psychology that has gotten more uh, more press around discrimination or differences has been related to implicit bias, a uh, very um, subtle, uh, bias that's hard for people to pick up on, but ends up um, impacting um, uh, people from different backgrounds. So, for example, subtle bias in how we look at resumes and subtle bias at, at, into how we treat each other, things like that. And very recently, um, over the last few years, we're beginning to look at this much more overt um, uh, hate um, overt uh, violence, um, and uh, what we've recently been seeing more of in the news, um, this whole idea of dehumanization, the emergence of all of this. And it is, um, it's quite concerning where we are and where we're headed. Um, uh, one of the psychologists who's been talking a, a lot about political differences is Jonathan Haidt, and um, he's highlighted a lot of the political polarization that's also happening in the country and how over the last few decades we have seen um, a very much uh, the world in America is different if you uh, lean more towards the liberal end of the political spectrum or if you lean towards the more conservative end of the spectrum. We seem to live in different worlds where we live in uh, different regions uh, urban versus suburban or rural. Um, we eat different foods. We consume different media. We dress differently. Um, our worldview has become increasingly diverged. And uh, it's also in parallel happening in Washington, D.C., where the political parties have um, in some ways purified themselves, um, expelled the more moderate elements, and have become more extreme. So we are seeing, in, in the psychological sense, uh, polarization in attitudes, in beliefs, in, in where we live, in our politics. And we're starting to see this, um, well, we've been seeing this now for a while play out in a lot of the, the news that's happening around the country. So I want to delve into some of the, the history of this, because this idea of, of groups hating each other, that's not new, and psychology has been studying this for a while. 
and maybe you can take my psychology 101 memory from college and it advance me into sort of the current state of thinking. So what what I remember from that initial class in psychology was was something simple um on, on this topic is that there would be oftentimes othering of 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 another group. There would be a an in-group and an out-group, which was a you know sort of a famous psychology theory. There's an in and an out. And once you're out, you can have different feelings towards that out-group, like aggression, and have a stronger sense of love for the in-group. Does that simplistic theory still hold today? Oh, yeah, it absolutely holds. And if, if you think about it in the most basic sense, um, let's go back to our evolutionary history. Um, for most of our species, um, while we have lived on this planet, we functioned in small tribes and small groups. And back then, um, you know, if you were living with 50 other people or so, um, it made a lot of sense uh, for you to trust your group and uh, be distrustful of other groups. And that, that's where this whole idea of in-group, out-group bias comes from. You like your group and you dislike, you distrust other groups. It was very, um, uh, it was very safe. It was a basic sense of safety. What's interesting is even if we randomly assign people to a group. And there's been a lot of research that that has done this, that has assigned people to different groups for different reasons. And in some cases, even explicitly told people, we are randomly assigning you to a group. This is just, you know, coming out of the computer, whatever digits come here, that's the group you're getting assigned to. People will like that group more than the other group even if they know it's been completely random. And I think this is something that uh, everyone has experienced. You know, I think back to times when I was in elementary school and just randomly we were being put into different groups for some type of group project. You almost immediately start to like your group and to start to think about how the other groups are, are bad or not as good. It's this natural process that takes over. And this is, happens in work. It happens in playgrounds. It happens all the time. And I'm not saying that homogeneity is good or it's um, in some ways it's, it's good for us to like our own groups. Homogeneity in nature, in biology, in psychology is is bad. Um, groups tend to do better when there's diversity of perspectives, when people from different backgrounds come together, when it's made okay for people to share dissenting points of view. But I mean, even genetic diversity, even genetic diversity. Same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A, a, a population works best when there is uh, differences in, in the gene pool. Um, the issue, though, here is, as you start to introduce um, different perspectives as you start to introduce heterogeneity into a social group you get more conflict that just happens when you have differences there's going to be more conflict and um, we can overcome that conflict uh, knowledge of other people contact with other people um, leads to empathy and that helps us to overcome these differences so the in-group out-group bias 
isn't something that it that cannot be overcome, um, but it is something that takes some effort to overcome. So that's the basic foundation there. That's true of everyone. And if we go back to um, some psychological history, what prompted a lot of this research into hate and dehumanization really was World War II. A lot of psychologists looked at that and wondered what was it about the Germans that led them to um, to create this Holocaust, this extermination of of the Jewish people and and of other people as well. And researchers like uh, one of the famous names in psychology, Stanley Milgram, this individual who did this um, study of obedience. A lot of their theories as social psychologists at the time believed that there was something unique, something about the German people that made them more vulnerable to following orders or more vulnerable to engage in these very um, uh, horrific acts. And what the research showed is given the right circumstances, given the right situations, um, any of us is capable of these actions. Stanley Milgram's uh, obedience to authority research was originally supposed to happen here in America as a control sample and then a comparison sample in um, in Germany. And he actually never made it over to Germany. He was so surprised at the results here um, to see that such a majority of people in this experiment were willing to comply with an authority figure and think that they're shocking someone else in um, in a nearby room, and um, he, those results were never expected. Um, it was never expected that Americans would comply with orders in a way that was similar to what a lot of people were saying with um, individuals who were in the Nazi government. So, so we have what you know we've seen in recent weeks. We've seen neo Nazis, you know, reemerge on the scene here in the United States, at least sort of much more publicly. Are you is the research then suggesting there isn't much difference between me and that neo-Nazi in terms of what our behavior could be, but there's been some sort of authoritarian figure that has led this Nazi neo-Nazi person in a different direction? Yeah, this is where things get really complicated. <laughs> and this is where um Whenever I'm teaching this subject, this is where people start to get uncomfortable um, to hear that uh, there might not be that much of a difference between um, people who are listening to this podcast and, and people who might um, have beliefs or attitudes that we might find very um, abhorrent. Uh, we used to believe a long time ago, before this research came about, that there were bad apples. And in fact, you'll you'll hear this in politics, you'll hear this in news, that um, there are bad agents, and we fired those bad agents that were responsible for these things. Um, but that's not what the research bears out. What the research bears is, it, there are, um, we can have bad barrels that rotten the whole process. And it's it's the structure, the situations, um, some of these other variables involved that can lead people down these different paths. Not excusing the behavior that anyone engages in, but we can when we start to unpack some of this stuff, we can we can see how people get to this place. So the in group outgroup bias is one thing, but what we're seeing 
more in the news, and especially if we l- take a closer look at the events of Charlottesville and um, the pr- protests and the unfortunate deaths that happened there. Um, I think dehumanization is a, a good way to understand that. And, and what dehumanization is all about, it's w- when you start to believe that this other group or a other group is uh, in some way less than human or not deserving complete humane treatment. When you start to believe that there is some type of hierarchy between human beings, that some are better than other, um, it's, it's very hard to believe in white supremacy, to believe that um, people who have a white background um, are in some way superior without also falling into some of these dehumanizing beliefs, believing that there is a hierarchy, believing that some people, if some people are better, that also means that some people are worse and that they're less deserving of of basic humane treatment. How does that come about? Because, uh, you know, just uh, imagining this in myself, like the, I, I think about sports teams and meeting some really rabid fans that will u- sometimes use language about how they they hate fans of the other team, but there's a clear distinction, even though they have this strong pack mentality and strong belief that their team is better than the other one. There's a clear distinction between that feeling and what we're seeing from these uh, supremacy um, groups. Uh, what's the what is what's the difference there? Is that is time the big variable? Is something else at play here that allows that next level uh, to emerge that really takes us down this dehumanization pathway? Well, I'm a, I'm a pretty big nerd, and for a long time, I, I sort of looked down upon organized professional sports, but I, I've really come. Um, to a very different perspective on that now. And I think a lot of professional sports um, are a good example of how we can deal with in-group, out-group bias. Um, so y- you're absolutely right. We see that. Um, I live out here in, in New York City. So there's a big rivalry between the New York Jets. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, New York Jets, poor New York Jets. Uh, I met the New York Giants and the New England Patriots. Um, there's a rivalry between the Yankees and the Mets and all this sort of stuff. But there's a lot of big differences in how that type of uh, conflict plays out. Number one, you have frequent contact with people who who represent the other side. So even in the stadium, you are interacting with other people. And in many ways, um, you might see them um, at school or at the workplace. Um, you you often interact with the other side. Um, there's also uh, sportsmanship um, modeling that happens. So you see the two teams congratulate each other, or hopefully you do. Sometimes violence and stuff like that breaks out. But there's, there is this line in professional sports that we treat each other with respect, or at least we're supposed to. So it's, it's a very um, healthy in-group, out-group process that that plays out. And some psychologists believe that this is a healthy way for us to deal with our more tribal psychology and this very primitive tribal mentality that we have. The difference with dehumanization, number one is contact. We often see 
um, in these um, between groups that might dehumanize each other, that there isn't too much contact between them. So that's number one. Uh, number two is disgust somehow uh, develops. So either there is leadership in a group that is um, expressing ideas about how um, a certain type of people are barbaric barbaric or animalistic or disgusting um, and that type of idea starts to hold and and this is something we've seen in history um, American slave owners believe um, Africans and blacks were barbarians German Nazis called Jews rats um, the Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches during the Rwandan genocide and that gets to my third point which is some type of ideology takes hold. And when there are uh, beliefs that start to take hold um, related to a group of people that you don't often have contact with and that you find disgusting, then things get really complicated. Um, when ideologies take hold, and especially if people start to believe in some type of um, sacred belief or sacred idea, um, those are not things that you can easily um, rationally um, uh, get people to sort of uh, um, shake them out of that. You can't you can't debate out of that. Um, sacred beliefs are something that are very uh, very inflexible and um, they can be used to rationalize a lot of violence, a lot of aggression, a lot of hate against other people. So it's it's those three things coming together, not having much contact, finding another group disgusting, and um, some type of ide ideology that takes hold. And we see this with white supremacy, the, the idea that um, they are a people, uh, white people are more superior, they have higher IQs, and um, that they are being attacked in some way, that their, their values, their way of life, their history is being attacked. That's the sacred value part, that they're, they're their identities being attacked and they need to defend it. Going back to my question of time, is this something that takes a long time to develop? Does it or can it come about quickly or is time even not the right question no, uh, it, to be poking at here? Uh, time is an interesting variable because uh, we've seen examples of this that have happened relatively quickly. So we've seen... Um, We've seen dehumanization against Muslim Americans uh, take hold here in the United States uh, to varying degrees after 9-11. Um, hate crimes against Muslims really spiked after 9-11, and we've seen that at various times uh, spike up and down, and that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, Again, with the Rwandan genocide, that was something that um, in a very short amount of time, it reached this tipping point and uh, with horrific results. It Given if, if there is enough of a organized structure 
to a culture or to a group of people if the flow of information is pretty strictly controlled, um, time becomes less of a variable because these things can spread pretty quickly, intensify pretty quickly, especially, again, if the only people you're interacting with are people like yourselves. That's where group polarization plays out. So when you only interact with people who have similar views as yourself, your views do become more extreme over time. Um, So an example I can throw out here is if I only interact with Trekkies, I'm a big time Star Trek fan. If I only interact with Trekkies, my views of Star Trek being superior to Star Wars really intensify. And I've I've experienced this when I'm at a Star Trek convention versus more of a broad comic con that has more of a broad audience. Uh, my views do become a bit more extreme when it comes to Star Trek. So this stuff can, um, given the right uh, social circumstance, uh, time becomes less of a factor. Yeah, I've, I've been working on a Star Wars project. And so I could feel the, the opposite where um, I was drawn much more into that universe by being surrounded by it, where it wasn't it wasn't even so much that people were saying you should think Star Wars is better than Star Trek. It was just everywhere I went, that's where the conversation was and lived. And so it wasn't anyone telling me per se. It was that the environment and the nature of my interactions guided me naturally in that direction. And Star Wars, I think, is a good example here because it, Star Wars um, taps into some of that, um, some of those sacred values. The way people see the original st- Star Wars trilogy is that it's almost sacred, and uh, so many people had such strong reactions to the prequel movies that came out, Star Wars Episode One, Two, and Three, almost as if they were sacrilegious in some way, and you saw. Some dehumanized language related to George Lucas and what he did with those films. And this is part of the message that I was trying to get across in um, the video I made is we are all capable of this. Given the right circumstances, um, in-group, out-group bias can um, can slip into something that is much more concerning. Uh, some of the research has been done related to dehumanization and discussed uh, related to the homeless and how people, f- um, if people find the homeless is disgusting, how little empathy we have for them. A psychologist uh, named Susan Fisk has done a lot of the neuroscience research here, and there's a pretty strong relationship. Once once you see the homeless as disgusting, empathy really turns off. And we even see this in relation to, to the Nazis, how some of us who learn about the war crimes, um, the extent to which the Holocaust occurred, all of these things, as we discover this, we might start to call the Nazis as, um, as animals or barbarians ourselves. So we ourselves are, are capable of this. It can be very easy to, to slip into this uh, line of thinking. So you bring up kind of an interesting place because everyone seems to be offering their suggestion of how to deal with the emergence or at least the appearance of the emergence of some of these groups in today's climate. And so uh, I want to address something you just brought up, like 
one of the things I always hear is there is a lack of empathy. There is a complete lack of empathy. We need more empathy in this situation, which, well, first of all, I think people use empathy to mean different things. What does it mean in psychology to say, to ask, uh, what does empathy really represent? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think if you ask five psychologists, you might get slightly different answers about uh, about what that actually means. Um, I think empathy uh, in the... The way I experience empathy is um, in, in my day job is being a clinical psychologist where I, I have to find empathy um, to be able to do the work that I do. For me, it's about connecting with the humanity and the other person, um, being able to understand uh where they might be coming from or how they've experienced the world in some way. It's different from sympathy. Uh, sympathy is more about feeling similar as the other person is is feeling. So, for example, if someone is um, experiencing something very sad, they're crying, um, you might feel sympathy and you, you might start crying as well. Um, empathy is a little bit different where it goes deeper and you might um, actually understand what it is that's making that person sad or how the events in their life have come to a place where they're experiencing what they are right now. That's, that's more how I experience it, empathy, or how, th- how I think about it. So in this context of needing more empathy, like having more empathy for groups that are, are fairly extreme, I mean, no other way to put it, um, is that an approach that will, will somehow break through when they are in a position that has so othered us? Is that even legitimate to, to consider as a potential um, way forward? Oh, that's a great question. And... I think what is making this more difficult um, and what makes that question difficult to answer is um, we talked about polarization and we talked about um, how we're living in different spaces, seeing the world differently, consuming different media. But what we haven't really talked about here is the Internet and you're asking me about time and is time a factor? And I'm surprised we didn't talk about the internet yet, because the internet is a um, is a catalyst in this equation that can speed up this whole process and make polarization worse. So if we look at uh, the alt right, for example, this this group that has emerged that we don't really know too much about, the this group that has largely organized um, in different regions of the internet. And um, the very first, this is a preliminary non-peer-reviewed um, article has appeared online. It's all open access, um, so people can can check it out. This is by psychologist Patrick Forsher and Noor uh, Catelli. Um, wonderful article where they dived into um, this group and found that, um, I think it was a sample of over 400 uh, self-identified alt-right um, individuals um, a lot of dehumanization, a lot of what we call the dark triad, this uh, collection of narcissism, of uh, a disregard, of Mach- Machiavellianism, of 
disregard for his status quo, wanting personal gain, and um, psychopathy, this diminished empathy and remorse for other people. Um, what do we do with that population? And I don't think we have... Um, I don't think we have the public spaces. I don't think we have the ways of connecting with each other that um, can really help us to quickly overcome these problems. So the internet makes it very easy for groups like uh, the art alt-right to form. And it also makes it very easy for us to have dialogue and discourse that um, intensifies our polarization. So one of my favorite terms in psychology is uh, the nasty effect. And it's the, it's got such great face validity <laughs> to the name. <laughs> it, it's basically a term that describes what happens in the internet comment section. Where when Oh, that is perfect. <laughs> right? That's a perfect name for <laughs> it's the best name ever. Um so it it's basically what the nasty ref, uh, effect refers to is um when you see comments in the comment section, they tend to be pretty extreme. And as you read them, it tends to intensify whatever pre-existing uh, belief you had going into the comment section. So um, you combine that with something called the online disinhibition effect, which has found that um, both anonymity as well as lack of eye contact lead to a lot of the heinous um, discourse that we see on social media, on YouTube, in comment sections. You combine all of this stuff together, and you also factor in how we are not regularly coming into contact with people who are different than ourselves, then we have essentially constructed a society that um, intensifies these differences, makes it very hard for people with different perspectives to come into contact with each other, and um, perpetuates this whole polarization machine. So to answer your question, um, this is not going to be easy for us to overcome as a people. And um, I think we are running into a lot of the major challenges um, related to empathy and how do we scale up empathy when empathy for us um, getting back to that in-group out-group bias when empathy for us was about these different tribes slowly coming into contact with each other learning about each other and maybe forming a larger group and you sort of compound that over years and years and you get a society and you get civilization and you get all of that sort of stuff. If that's where we come from and now we are in this interconnected uh, global world and we're trying to scale up empathy to a much larger degree than we've ever had before and also... As a people, we are very much geographically polarized. We're polarized on the internet. Um, we are running out of ways to overcome that, given what we have right now um, in terms of technology, what we have in society, and, and how we live. So, if we, like, I guess I'll I'll fast forward to the, the million dollar question that exists for me: is if you had two people in a room. Um, 
that we're on these opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, is there, what, what would we do um, with those people to get them to, to connect and, um, and, and, and change this course? Because it seems like based on what you're suggesting, we, we can't give quarter to groups on the extreme part of this that have, fully dehumanize people because giving them any sort of sense of, of respect or even modicum of acknowledgement uh, emboldens them to, to go further. Um, but at the same time, these belief systems that they have are so ingrained that it's going to take a long time um, to potentially overcome and change. So uh, what, what do we do with this, this all? I know there's no easy answers here, um, but maybe we turn it down even a notch. Like, what if, you know, I'm I, I'm fully admitting that I, I'm a, a fairly liberal person, um, and I've had a lot of trouble connecting to um, supporters of, of the current president. Um, but it's it's not a dehumanized situation for me. I just have a, trouble understanding them. If you had me and another person like that in a um, in a room, what would you tell us to do? Um, in order to overcome those barriers? Well, it's easier one-to-one. And um, what what has been found to be helpful is getting a better understanding of what the other person actually believes. So there's been research on Muslim Americans and dehumanization related to them, and a, a lot of people who might feel um, like Muslims are in some way uh, more barbaric or have a more primitive culture. Uh, understanding that uh, a lot of uh, Muslims in America and Muslims around the country really respect and admire America has been found to be helpful in, in turning down the heat on some of that dehumanization. So um, more accurate knowledge is helpful. Um, Just being in that room together, if we take these two people who really hate each other, being in that same room together for an extended period of time is going to slowly bring down some of that heat. So contact with each other helps. And then the hardest part of this is really developing empathy with each other, um, sitting down to break bread and understanding each other. Um, it, as corny as it sounds, that is the best way to cut through all of this. The New York Times, uh, the Daily Podcast, had a wonderful interview uh, with Derek Black. He's the son of of Don Black, a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, um, and uh, Derek's uh, godfather is David Duke. So this is someone who grew up in a white nationalist uh, family. And uh, the interview goes on to talk about how he left all of those views behind. And it really happened when he went to college, got to know other people, got to know other information, and he started to uh, realize that some of his views don't really make sense for him anymore. So contact with other people is really helpful over here. It's very hard to do that. And... um, It's possible, but it's very hard to do. I think some of the things that we can do um, is, as a society, we we really can't excuse or allow uh, dehumanization um, uh, 
between groups of people. So I, I'm a big First Amendment guy. Um, freedom of speech is um, is a I think one of the best things we have here in the United States, and the degree to which we have freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech does mean, though, you all you there are consequences that you have to live with of what you say. And one of the consequences of dehumanization uh, or language that's dehumanizing is we need to respond to that and make it very clear that this type of language is morally abhorrent. Um, That's one of the ways in which Germany has a remembrance culture where um, leadership shuts down um, and labels language that's dehumanizing as being abhorrent. So there's a culture that really makes it clear that this is something that's a taboo. We don't do this. Um, It becomes a part of the ideology of the culture. So we can do that. Um, Another thing that that we have done is uh, there's some good evidence about how um, mass media can be one venue to increase empathy and knowledge and understanding of different people. We saw this in the um, past 15 years or so uh, related to uh, the public's perception of LGBT individuals. Uh, We are in a very different world right now when it comes to public perception of LGBT people than where we were in the 90s. And a lot of stuff happened. There's been a lot of people who have been fighting for uh, rights for LGBT people, for equality. Um, And there's been a lot in the media. Um, There's a lot to say about Ellen and what she did on her original show um, and what she's done in daytime to be a publicly open gay person that people feel like they know through her television show. And so there are things that we can do in media. Um, Another thing that we can do politically is uh, gerrymandering. Um, Gerrymandering is a process that has very much solidified a lot of the geographic polarization and um, makes it difficult for us to even have elections where candidates need to appeal to um, to different demographics. You know, I used to describe myself as someone who is very liberal as well. And where I see our politics going is as it's going more and more extreme, I feel myself being pulled more to being a moderate. Um, I have colleagues and friends who have said very dehumanizing things about Donald Trump. And I think it's a very similar side of the problem as we're seeing on the right. A similar side is playing out on the left. So a lot of these different me- uh, different pieces need to change. Um, our politics, our media is one option. And finding some way to have what you described as like getting people from different perspectives with different ideologies to sit in a room together for an extended period of time. I think technology is going to help us get there in some way. 
Um, I think the next leap forward with the internet, um, whether it's going to be uh, more virtual reality, um, avatar face-to-face type of interactions, uh, something is going to come along that is going to be a big leap forward in terms of how we're interacting with each other. And once that comes along, and once we can solve some of these political problems, um, maybe, maybe we can start to, to change this. Which leads into my final question. Do you, do you find yourself optimistic about the future, given everything that you've seen from the history of psychology, um, combined with those different variables, including the internet that you see today? Well, I am a Trekkie. I am eternally optimistic. Uh, some of uh, psychologist Steven Pinker's research has looked at um, the history of violence. And if you look at the history of violence going back thousands of years, we live in the most peaceful time for humanity. Um, the way our news media is set up is really to highlight the most horrific things that are happening in the world. And, and that's what they should be doing. Um, one of the problems is we're kind of overwhelmed with news. We get alerts on our phone. We're constantly rechecking. And there's a lot of, of news that's out there. Um, but if you if you look at the facts, if you look at the data, there's never been a more peaceful time for humanity than there is now. And what I see us dealing with is... Um, the next step for our species. It's it's how do we get from where we are right now, where we are struggling um, inside of our, our, our nation, as well as um, uh, in terms of cooperation with, uh, with other nations. How do we get from where we are right now to a place where there's more cooperation, where we are able to find empathy? I, I think there's going to be a breaking point here, and people are going to be hungry for paths forward, because this is not really sustainable. And I, I see this as the next step forward for us as a, as a species, is to figure out how do we scale up empathy from um, the tribal level, as we've had for, for so long, to a more uh, national and global level. I, I think we're going to get there. Um, I don't know how, but, well, but I I'll think take- we're going to get there. I'll take any optimism in this day and age that I get. So, uh, Ali Matu, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So some aspects of that interview reminded me of a previous interview that we had with my friend Dave Amodio at NYU Studies Prejudice. Actually, now he moved to um, Amsterdam. And... You know, the the thing that always kind of keeps me going is uh, Dave's idea that one of the solutions towards acting out on false or stereotypic beliefs is the fact that, you know, we have a prefrontal cortex and we can reason our way out of behavioral impulses. And at the same time, that one of the best ways to diminish even implicit bias is to put someone in contact with the object of their hate and show them how that person is a human being just like them. So find a way in which you can bond with the person in the other so that they are no longer the other, but rather in your group. I mean, you heard Ali and I struggling with this. Like, that sounds great. There's a lot of evidence to what you said. Um, But how do you get into a room with a, a white supremacist? Like, what are the chances of that happening, let alone getting two people to agree to that? 
So it seems like it's not only getting into the other room, but getting into the other room before we get to this point. I mean, thankfully, I believe, and I don't know this for sure, but I believe that uh, the number of white supremacists in the U.S. is a minuscule number. Uh, that that is still, you know, a very small amount of people. Sure, so. we're just using it as a metaphor because there's tendrils of this hate that run through different aspects. Right, but you might have seen that there have been a lot of ads, for example, that are capitalizing on this idea for, you know, like beer companies who show who bring like a Trump voter and a Clinton voter into a room and they have to like discuss their differences and so forth. So it it feels forced in that way all (laughs) corporate advertising does. But yeah. But uh, you know, I think that that's sort of, you know, the direction in which we're going, although it does seem like, you know, you're you're trying to uh, drain the ocean one spoonful at a time. I think here's the real, I think, million dollar question. We touched on this a little bit is our technology platforms, the Facebooks, the Twitters, are designed in a way to push us further apart, push us closer together to people we already agree with, something we've talked about a lot on this show and, and elsewhere. So how do we overcome that the direction that technology is taking us when we know the evidence in terms of long-term psychology around this points in another direction? Uh, and how can that technology adapt uh, to that understanding from psychology, or or will it? You know, unfortunately, I think it's about electing better leaders. <laughs> I I don't agree. I I really really don't agree. Um, in the sense that I think what we saw in Charlottesville and seen in other places that doesn't happen overnight. That didn't happen between November and now. I think that those are deep seated, long developing belief systems, and. And I do think technology has played a part into accelerating our ability to peek into those worlds. So I'm wondering if if you're Mark Zuckerberg, do you have more to say about this than if you're Donald Trump? Like he might be actually the more important person in the equation. Well, you know, I I recently read a really interesting kind of Wired article, and one of the ways in which they referred to Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, the nice guy in the room who's like smiling, but quietly rebuilding the fabric of social civilization. And I wonder if people like Mark Zuckerberg, in fact, have a greater effect ultimately on society than even our president. So with that in mind... That's it for another episode. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Stefan Meyer Ewald, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgul, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, John Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. And patrons, thank you so much for your support. Look for many more updates in the weeks to come. Yes, we are about for our... Uh, special patrons about to set out a whole bunch of videos for you which we've been working on over the last few months you can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds and there see our new show called science and progress you can also find us on twitter at inquiring show and facebook and you can send us comments feedback future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Music
Once again, this episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, it doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash minds and post a job for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash minds to try it for free. Acclaimed singer-songwriter Jack Johnson returns with his new album, All the Light Above It Too, featuring the singles My Mind is for Sale and Big Sur. According to LA Weekly, Jack Johnson remains one of the more influential singer-songwriters of the 21st century. All the Light Above It Too is available now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.